Well, we're in the book of the Judges, if you're joining us for the first time. And as always, as a reminder, all these sermons are online. They usually get posted um, Monday afternoon uh, via SoundCloud. Um, you can also subscribe, Apple Podcasts, Lynchburg City Church. All these sermons are there. I say that because if you're here for the first time, we are 14 sermons in to our series in the book of the Judges. And today we begin with chapter 9, verse 1, and, and this story is coming on the heels of the death of Gideon. Gideon, most people remember him, he had the fleece, he put the fleece out on the ground uh, as he was trying to really just gain confidence uh, going into the battle with the Midianites. And so Gideon has just died. That's what happened last week. He died, and at the end of chapter 8, we learn that Gideon had 70 sons, but it only mentions one of them by name, and that is his son Abimelech, a foreshadowing of things to come here in chapter 9, as we'll see. And so today we begin in chapter 9, verse 1. Now Abimelech, the son of Jerubbaal, Jerubbaal means let Baal contend for Baal. It was a name that was given to Gideon when he tore down the altar to Baal back in chapter 6. So now Abimelech, the son of Jerubbaal, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, Say in the ears of all the elders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jerubbaal rule over you, or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. Perhaps inspired by his own name, Abimelech, which means my father is the king, he makes a move to seize power. He's determined to carve out his own kingdom. He's, he's very ambitious, Abimelech, much like his father Gideon at the end of his life. And so he's carefully planned this strategy. How can he carve out his kingdom? Well, he realizes that he needs to secure support of all of his mother's relatives. She's a Shechemite. That is, she's not an Israelite, she's a Canaanite. And Canaanites, that term oftentimes is used very generically to refer to any non-Israelites living in the Palestine area. But he realizes that in order to become king, he needs to make some political maneuvers. And so his hope is that if he can secure his extended family support, then perhaps they can secure the support of the Shechemite aristocracy. And that's his strategy. And he's really going to come with it at a twofold approach. Number one, his argument is isn't it better to have one man rule over you than to have 70 of his half brothers? You've got to think it is. And the second thing is isn't it preferable to have someone who's related to you than an outsider? And so by doing this, Abimelech is highlighting his own qualification for why they should go along with his plan. He's presented it. Here's how they respond. Verse 3. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem. And their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech. For they said, He is our brother. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of baal Berith, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him who are really going to do his dirty work. 
And he went, verse 5, to his father's house at Oprah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jeroboam, 70 men on one stone. Killed them all. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, was left, for he hid himself, and all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. It's interesting because in chapter 8, there's a parallel, yet totally different, kind of series of events. At the end of chapter 8, we learn that one of the reasons, I think, for Gideon's motivation, for his anger, for his pain, is that the Midianites who had been mistreating the Israelites weren't just stealing and taking their possessions, but they had killed their own people. And we learn that they had killed Gideon's brothers. They had killed his family members. And when Gideon learns that, he executes the two Midianite kings. It happened at the end of chapter 8. And here we have a very different response. Abimelech. Abimelech wants to be king. And he sees his brothers as in the way. And so he kills them. Gideon finds out his his brothers have been killed. Or rather, the the narrator explains to the reader his brothers have been killed. And he kills the men responsible for their deaths. And then Abimelech, his son, on the polar opposite, kills his brothers who are in the way of him getting what he really wants. For Abimelech, the lives of his brothers were incredibly cheap. For Gideon, they were incredibly valuable. But his plan works. All of his brothers are killed. Seventy of his brothers. They're all dead. Except one. The youngest brother, Jotham, he escapes. And he is made king. And once he's made king, Jotham, he comes out of hiding. He comes out of hiding to deliver a message to the people. Verse 7. When it was told to Jotham, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim and cried aloud and said to them, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. He comes out of hiding. He's on top of Mount Gerizim, some hilly, cliffy area where he can, he can yell down to them, but they don't have immediate access to him so that he can deliver his message. And his message is going to be, in the following verses, between 8 and 15, one of the finest examples in Scripture of a fable. When I say fable, uh, a fable is a short narrative, which it can be poetry or prose in, in this instance that teaches a moral lesson that involves creatures or plants or inanimate objects speaking and behaving like humans. And this is what he says to the men of Shechem after they've made his brother Abimelech the king. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, reign over us. The trees go out, They approach the olive tree, one of the most valuable trees in all of Israel. The the olive tree, it was the best, one of of the, really, the, the most valuable of the agricultural products. It would be used in everyday life in, with cooking oil or medicine, laxatives, lubricants, leather softeners, fuel and lamps, ingredients for perfumes. And so the trees go out. And they address the olive tree. Rule over us, reign over us, be our king. And the olive tree says no. 
Verse 9, But the olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my abundance, by which gods and men are honored, and go hold sway over the trees? No, I'm not going to reign over you. I've got other stuff to do. Then they go and they think, Well, if the olive tree won't reign over us, maybe we can talk to the fig tree. Verse 10, And the tree said to the fig tree, You come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go hold sway over the trees? No, I, I got, I've got my hands full. I don't have time to do this. Verse 12, And the tree said to the grapevine, You come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? All three of them decline the offer of kingship. First the olive, then the fig, then the grapevine. They're all offered, they all decline. Why? Because they're too busy being productive. Because they're too busy serving others. They're too busy helping others. Unlike Abimelech who seizes the throne. Abimelech, who is driven by sheer self-interest. Abimelech, who is all about his personal ambition. These trees say, no, we we, we got stuff going on. We got to help people. We got to be productive. And so the other trees, they get together and think, all right, well, the olive tree said no. The fig tree said no. The grapevine said no. Well, I guess we could ask the thorn bush. I guess we could ask the bramble. Okay, let's go ask the bramble. And that's exactly what they do. Verse 14. Then all the trees said to the bramble, You come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. The bramble, the thorn bush, it accepts. And the ironic thing is, unlike the other trees... We're all productive members of society. The bramble has absolutely nothing positive to contribute. And not only does it have nothing to contribute, it also has this absurd idea, based no doubt in its high self-esteem that it has of itself, come and take refuge underneath me. I don't know about you, but if you're looking for places to find shade, you're probably not going to look to do it under a thorn bush. Not the most ideal tree or plant to find shade. But that's the bramble, right? right? It's on an ego trip, especially now that the offer's been made. Come and take shade under me. And oh, by the way, if you haven't made this offer in good faith, I will release fire to consume even the great cedars of Lebanon. That is, from the bramble's point of view... He has so highly esteemed himself that if anyone steps out of line, then he'll punish any faithless subjects. But not just any, specifically the great cedars of Lebanon, because for the thornbush, for the bramble, he's not going to be king just over any trees. The bramble, the thornbush, wants to be king over the most majestic of all the trees. And at this point, you probably realize where Jotham is going. 
as he addresses the men of Shechem with what has recently just happened, making Abimelech the king, right? Abimelech, this guy, he's like one of these two categories. And I'll give you a hint. It's not the olive, the fig, or the grapevine who all contribute very positively, who all help and serve others. No, he is like the thorn bush. He is like the bramble. He is on an ego trip. That is this man, Abimelech. And at this point, Jotham concludes the fable and then breaks off into a eulogy of his father, Gideon, of his father, Jerubal, who risked his life fighting for the people of Shechem on their behalf. And this is what he says. Now, therefore, verse 16, let's suppose, okay? Let's suppose, paraphrase, if you acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king, and supposing, okay, if you've dealt well with Jerobaal and his house and have done for him as his deeds deserved, let's quickly recount his deeds, for my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian, and you have risen up against my father's house this day, and have killed his sons, 70 men, on one stone, and have made Abimelech, the son of his female servant, king over the leaders of Shechem, because he's your relative. In other words, it's not somebody who's qualified. It's not somebody who has the right pedigree. He's the son of Gideon's female servant. And you only did it because he's your relative. If, once again, supposing, okay, if Let's say you have acted in good faith and integrity with Jerubal and with his house this day. Then rejoice in Abimelech. You've got nothing to worry about. We're good to go. If. And let him also rejoice in you. Verse 20. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Melo. And let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Milo, and devour Abimelech. If you guys are on the up and up, and everything is good, you got nothing to worry about. But if you have not acted with integrity and faithfulness, you have a lot to worry about. And may both of you destroy one another. And Jotham, verse 20, ran away and fled and went to Beer, and lived there because of Abimelech, his brother. In the ancient Near East, kingship, it was viewed very positively. Kingship was viewed very desirable. It was a good thing, necessary, coveted by all. But Jotham perceives it fundamentally negative. Jotham perceives it as self-destructive. You see, like Abimelech, rulers have a tendency to desire power for the worst reasons. Just as true today in 2019 as it was here in the ancient Near East. Their own narcissistic self-interest. How and what can serve them? How and, how and who can serve me? But the interesting thing about Jotham's fable is that Jotham's fable is not primarily directed against Abimelech. Jotham's fable is primarily directed against those individuals who are foolish enough to anoint a worthless man to be their king. 
That's who's getting chewed out right now. And we'll come to Abimelech momentarily. But that's the real issue. Because Abimelech could never have pulled off his plan had the people not come and supported him. Shame on them, right? In this instance. The bottom line, you could say people tend to get the leaders they deserve. That's how it usually goes. And you can, practically speaking, you know how this goes. You have conversations and people complain about their leaders and you know what you know what normally happens. You say, well, did you... Did you what? <laughs> there it is, right? Did you vote, right? I'm mad. I don't like the president. I don't like the governor. I don't like this person or this person or this person. And so naturally, it doesn't matter who you are, Christian or pagan, you ask the question, like, did you vote? Because the nature of that question comes back to the issue in this story. And if you remember one word, it's responsibility. Okay? Responsibility. He's mainly calling out, not Abimelech, he's evil, yes, we'll get to him in a moment, but the people who put him into power. Right? He's saying, dude, my dad did all these things for you. Like, he saved your heinies. And and look how you guys have repaid him. That's the issue in the story. Yeah, Abimelech, bad guy. He follows in the footsteps of his father's personal ambition toward the ends of his life. Abimelech, he's going to do whatever he has to do to take whatever he wants to take. And bottom line is, it's not wrong that Abimelech becomes king. What the problem is, is it, it's wrong for how he goes about doing it. But as I've said repeatedly, he couldn't pull this off if the people hadn't supported him. We have a responsibility. That's, that's really the, one of the main ideas from these first 21 verses. We have a responsibility. The problem is, is like the people of Shechem, we sometimes ignore this. It's called compromise. We compromise like the people in this story have done. Despite the fact that, oh, by the way, as Jotham has reminded them, my dad did so much for you. Like my, my, dad, my dad saved you, right? Getting saved them with the help of God, right? With, with God's providence, he saved them. And this is how you repay him, right? Modern application, right? If Jesus Christ has saved you from your sin, I'll just pose a rhetorical question. How are you repaying him? See, that's the issue. Responsibility. They compromise. And that's the point of the fable, right? We'll go to the olive tree. Olive tree says, no, I'm too busy serving and helping others. Okay, we'll go to the fig tree. I'm too busy serving and helping others. We'll go to the grapevine. I'm too busy serving and helping others. I mean, I guess there's, you know, I guess, yeah. I guess the thorn bush. Yeah, I guess, yeah. Bimlech, obviously, he presents the idea here. That's the whole point. They've compromised. They shouldn't compromise. They did. And they're not faithful. They're not faithful to Gideon. No, not at all. But lest you think it's just them, Abimelech's own father, Gideon, compromised. Ignored the responsibility that he has, the responsibility that we all have, oh, by the way, to obey God, 
Gideon ignored this. Moses made it very clear. Listen, there's some gals I don't want you dating, right? Okay, there's, there's some ladies you got no business pursuing. There's you got some ladies you got no business getting involved with, right? These Canaanite gals, nope, stay away. Oh, but they're really nice. Oh, but they're really pretty. Oh, man, but she's so hot. Listen, she may be hot, but so is hell. This is what Gideon does, right? He has no business getting involved in this relationship with this Shechemite woman who is a Canaanite. I'm sure Gideon's not thinking about the consequences. I'm sure Gideon's not thinking about, huh, I'm going to have all these kids, and yet, because I got in this relationship with my servant, this Canaanite woman, I'm going to have a son. He's going to go later on and slaughter all my other kids. So you never think about the consequences. Oh, but they're real. Yeah, the people have compromised in the fact that they've anointed Abimelech as their king. But this happened long before, right? Like ripples in a pond. You don't think of it, right? You don't ever think of that. I'm sure Gideon never thought of the fact that his, his sin, right? Moses was very clear on who they are having romantic relationships with versus who they're not to have romantic relationships with. I'm sure Gideon never thought that it could literally turn into such a bloodbath. But we do this. People make justifications and give reasons all the time. Oh, but if I, if I blah, 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 leave that person, then, you know, I'm their only Christian friend. Or, you know, all the other Christians that I know, they won't date me or whatever it might be, right? And so the thinking is, is well, I'd rather have somebody than nobody. That's the thinking. That's the rationale. Well, the olive tree said no. And the fig tree said no. And the grapevine said, no, so I guess we can just take the bramble. I guess we can take the thorn bush. And there's the justification. There's the compromise. There's the skirting of the responsibility. Right? I'd rather have somebody than nobody. Whether it's a king or it's a girlfriend. Both applicable in this context. It's going to be a very bloody consequence. Not just today, as we'll see next week as well. People don't think about the consequences in the moment of trying to skirt responsibility in those moments when we compromise, but that we see how it's playing out here. No, Jotham's fable is not mainly directed against Abimelech. It's against the people who put him into power. It's a good reminder for us all. But then, what about Abimelech? Bad guy, yeah. But the real issue is, not that he became king, the real problem for Abimelech is how he goes about becoming king. Two very important questions. You're taking notes, great time to write this down. And here's the question is, what are you doing and why are you doing it? Simple as that. What are you doing and why are you doing it? Because there's a lot of application to be squeezed out from the perspective of Abimelech within the story. What are you doing? Why are you doing it? See, as Christians, everything we should do should be to glorify God. 
that we might join with the Apostle Paul as he says, whether I eat or whether I drink, I do everything for the glory of God. That should be our motivation, right? Okay, whether I'm playing video games, whether I'm on a date, whether I'm out at the hockey rink yesterday playing hockey, everything should be focused on glorifying God, making God look great. Everything. Sometimes you say, how do you even do that practically? You know what I do? I'm sitting there on the bench, right, playing hockey yesterday, and I'm just, while I'm waiting for my next shift, I'm just talking to the guys next to me, getting to know them. And obviously, you know, the church comes up, and then I get a chance to invite them to come. And uh, that's what I mean, right? And it starts by just having a conversation, opening your mouth. And you should open your mouth. You should have those conversations. But for Abimelech, once again, not wrong that he's king. The problem is, is once again, answering that question, what are you doing and why are you doing it? Abimelech's motivation. I mean, he's willing to step over 70 of his dead brother's bodies to take what doesn't belong to him because he wants it. Because for Abimelech, it's all about Abimelech. It's all about me. He's selfish. He's just driven by his personal ambition and nothing else and no one else matters. So I think of, well, what's the opposite? If that's Abimelech, what's the opposite? And I'm thinking Philippians 2.4. That's a pretty good counter Abimelech verse. It's not on the screen, but I'll read it to you. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Now, the text doesn't say you can't look at your own interest, but rather, let each of you look not only to his own interest. Paul assumes that you will look to some degree to your own interest. Not look to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Abimelech doesn't do Philippians 2.4. And unfortunately, many people who claim to be Christians, they don't do Philippians 2.4 either. That's the sad reality. See, everything Abimelech does is about him. Everything he does is his own self-interest, his own personal ambition, his own ego is what is driving him to step over literally his dead brother's bodies that he had killed. Let each one, let each of us look not only to our own interests, because let's be honest, we have no problem doing that. We naturally do that really, really well. But also to the interest of others. See, this is why I love, this is why I love to emphasize like small groups. I'm all about small group. If you guys have never come on a Tuesday, Wednesday night, you should totally come. It's great. It's awesome. Because small group is where we get to Romans 12, 15 and up. It's where we get to weep with those who weep. It's where we get to rejoice with those who rejoice. But more than that, the reason I love small group so much is small group facilitates us to not just hear about Philippians 2.4, but to do Philippians 2.4, right? It creates this open pathway for us to consider the interest of others. So when I come on a Tuesday and Wednesday night, not mainly about me, it's how can I help others? How can I pour into others? How can I encourage others? How can I love others? How can I serve others? And on and on and on. Because we're not naturally inclined to do that usually. 
And that's what I love. That's why I love it so much, because it opens up that avenue for us to do something that we're not necessarily inclined to do when we meet in these pocket gatherings of the church during the week. It protects us from Abimelech-like tendencies where it's all about me. Where the focus is on me. And it gives us an opportunity, very practically speaking, to have the focus be on someone else for a change. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing. But unfortunately, there's just too many James 1.22 Christians. That's the problem, right? Too many James 1.22 Christians. James 1.22, let us be not just hearers of the word, but... Yeah, right, you guys know that. Let's not just be hearers of the word, let's be doers of the word. So we say, yeah, you're right, that's good, right? Look into the interests of others. Philippians 2.4, mm, amen, love that. <laughs> and then we walk out the door, and nothing changes. We're hearers of the word. That's great. Are we doers? We, want to, we don't just want to hear. We want, we want what we're hearing, even in this moment right now, to change us, to make us more like Christ. That's what we want. That's what we need. See, we don't have to compromise. When we compromise, ultimately, we only hurt ourselves and each other. The people of Shechem, that this fable is targeted to, they've compromised. They haven't borne well the responsibility that they should have, especially given the fact, as we've seen, everything that Jotham reminds them his father Gideon's done for them, they haven't. And a uh, little spoiler alert into next week's sermon, it's only going to hurt them. It's only going to hurt them. And I find many American churches today only encourage this type of Abimelech sort of mindset. Where it's all focused about the experience, right? So I'm, I want you to have the best experience. So that means that everything is tailored to the individual because it's about you. It's about you, right? So from the flavors of the coffee to the flavors of the pastries to did the team, worship team, did they perform that we thought they should? How was the pastor? Was he too funny? Was he not funny enough? Was he too serious? Was he not serious enough? Everything is tailored to me. And if it doesn't fit what I think it should be, boom, I'm out of here. I'm going somewhere else next week. Because we have this consumeristic mindset of what church is. It's an event, and the event is tailored to meet my needs. It's, it's, it's me, 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 me. That's Abimelech, right? Who literally steps over his dead brother's bodies to get what he wants. You say, I would never do that. And yet, in many lesser ways, we do. In many lesser ways, we struggle with this. And I'll be the first one. I struggle with this, right? That's why I said earlier, I love small group because small group, these pocket gatherings of the church, it gives me, it facilitates for me an opportunity to focus on others because I'm way too good at focusing on Joe Decreon. I'm really good at that. And it draws my attention, how can I help, serve, pray, love, care for my brothers and sisters in the faith, right? 
or whatever it might be, right? Thursdays, we've been going uh, to the Heritage Green Nursing Home. Josh Gowdy and me, Andrew Law were there this past Thursday, and it's just awesome because it's probably the best hour of my week. And I'm spinning there, and I went and saw Jimmy. Jimmy's this 88-year-old guy, and he's so happy to see us each week. We, we play with Jimmy, played Yahtzee with Jimmy. We always go in, and when we're gathering, we go and knock on everyone's doors, and we invite them, hey, we're here today, you want to come play some games with us? Um, regardless of whether they do or they don't, we always make it a point to read scripture to them, to do a devotional, and to pray for them if they'll have us pray. And, and Jimmy was just, just seeing like, how excited he was for us to come. He doesn't have any family, didn't have any children, like no family, no one comes and visits Jimmy. And so... We're there, and he was just sharing how he's like, yeah, I, I wasn't sure if I was going to see you this week. I was like, why? He's like, he's like, because like a couple days ago, I, I lost consciousness, and I, I thought that was it. Thought it was done. See, I love those moments, whether it's at the nursing home or whether it's a small group on a Tuesday, Wednesday night, because it just facilitates for us the pathway for us to focus on the needs of others. Imagine the type of revival that you would see within the American evangelical church if our mindset was not first and foremost on me, but if it was on my brothers and sisters sitting around me right now. If my mindset was, how can I pour into them? How can I serve them? How can I love them? How can I care for them? Where does that begin? I think it begins with Philippians 2.4. I think that's where it begins. And why? Because that's what Jesus did, right? Philippians 2.4 feeds into the rest of chapter 2, where it says, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God the thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Listen, he was in the form of God, but he's like, yeah, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. See, that's the example that we have in the fable. I'm going to go to the olive, the fig, and the grapevine. And what do they say? I can't be worried about that. Why? Because I, I'm, I'm too busy pouring in, helping, and serving others. I don't have time for this. The bramble does. The ironic thing, bramble's the worthless one, right, in the story. That's Abimelech. Then I was like, of course I'll have time to be your king and rule over you. Because it's all about Abimelech. How do you fight that? Philippians 2.4. That's how you fight it. And ultimately, that's the example that we have in Christ. That's the example. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Just imagine how much healthier the American church would be today. If we changed our mindset, and instead of encouraging Abimelech-like mentality, where church is nothing more than an event, and it's all about, did you have a cool experience? If we, bottom line, said, listen, bottom line, it's not about you, because it's really not. As I love to say, the message of the gospel is not that you're awesome. The message of the gospel is that you suck. (laughs) Like, you do. You do. I love you. But you do. And and the reason that's true, guys, the reason that's true is because if you didn't, you wouldn't need a Savior in the first place. 
Like, that's why we need Jesus. That's why the gospel is such good news. He humbled himself. Like, like taking the form of a servant. When I think about the anti-Abimelech, it's Christ. And practically how I apply that, man, Philippians 2.4. That's how I do that. So that's the issue. That's the story of Abimelech. The people, man, they get called out because it's on them. Because they rationalize, they make excuses, they compromise. Well, I'd rather have a, you know, somebody than nobody. They have a responsibility. They don't. Abimelech's plan never would work if he didn't have the support of the people. And furthermore, how do we avoid these natural Abimelech-like tendencies that we have? We think of others first. There's humility in that because our natural proclivity is to go the other way. And so, as the worship team comes forward right now, I want to pray for us, guys. I want to pray for us. Because we need help. So let's go to the one who has the power to give it to us. God, we love you and we need you, Jesus. We need you. Our natural proclivity, Lord, is to be selfish. Our natural proclivity is to be like Abimelech. And Lord, we don't want to. I don't want that for any one of us. And so I pray that you would help us to be selfless. I pray that you would help us to think of others. I pray that we might think of their needs. And by doing so, Lord, becoming more like you, Jesus. Oh, Lord, these are hard things. I pray that you would also protect us from compromise, from skirting responsibility, however it may present itself in our lives. We need your help, Jesus. So help us. Help us, God, and give us faith where we lack it, that we might obey you, because we have that responsibility to obey you, so help us. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.